USA Today once ran an article about the 10 most difficult things to do in sports. Uh, number five was, what do, you think the, what do you think the most difficult thing is to do in sports? If you were to think of it in your mind, just it's a rhetorical question, but just imagine what it would be. Well, number five was returning a professional tennis serve. That's good. Number four was hitting a golf ball long and straight, even though it's just sitting there on the tee. Number three was pole vaulting over 15 feet. Number two was driving a race car at mega speed without killing yourself. What do you think the hardest feat in athletics is? After all of that, number one, it's hitting a professionally thrown baseball. That's the number one thing. I was reading something by a pastor on the West Coast who related the following experience. He said, a few years ago, a friend of mine named Ned Coletti, who was vice president of the San Francisco Giants baseball team, asked if I would speak at a chapel service. So he offered to let me take batting practice with John Yandel, the batting practice pitcher for Barry Bonds. I thought it would be a good chance to benchmark my athletic skills. He said, I never played organized baseball, but as a kid growing up, we played on a vacant lot where the best pitcher around was Steve Snail. In fifth grade, I could hit his pitches better than anyone else in the neighborhood. There was only one other kid in the neighborhood, and she was in first grade. <laughs> but I was still the best, he says. Well, I did pretty well against Snail, I thought. Uh, let's see how this goes. Well, at the batting cage in AT&T Park, John wound up and let go, and I heard the sound of the ball hitting the net behind me. And, he, and I thought to myself, he's not just lobbing them in there. I thought, he, he wants to see if I can hit his best stuff. So John wound up again, and the second time I swung, the ball had already been in the net several seconds by the time I got the bat over the plate. So I kept starting my swing earlier and earlier until eventually I would begin my swing about the same time that I saw him start his wind-up, and I hit several foul balls and a few dribblers that might have gone fair, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. And then he said, get this, you want me to put a little zip on one? Those had been his lobs, he says. Sure, I said, it's been, it's been hard to time these slow balls. So he wound up, and I never, ever saw it. I asked him if that was his best pitch. No, he said, you wouldn't want to see that. What level player would hit that well? I asked. He said, well, a good high school player would crunch it, he said, and a good college player would strike out a high schooler with his eyes closed. Minor league guys would throw shutouts to college guys, put a major league arm against minor leaguers, and there's no contests. That day I learned, he said, there is a vast chasm between sandlot baseball in Rockford, Illinois, and major league talent in San Francisco. It's not just that I wasn't good. I didn't know enough to know how not good I was. A study done a few years ago showed that the first sign of incompetence in our ability is our ability to perceive inability. I'm so, let me say that again. The first sign of incompetence is our inability to perceive incompetence. We deceive ourselves about our intelligence, don't we? We deceive ourselves about our talent. We deceive ourselves about our appearance. A grandpa, a friend of mine, he says, boarded an airport tram and noticed an attractive young woman sitting nearby who smiled at him, and he thought to himself, I've still got it. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, she said. I can stand. Would you like my seat? <laughs> Nowhere does this inability to perceive incompetence or to have an objective, accurate, reality-based view of ourselves show itself more than in the spiritual realm. 
When it comes to our sense of how well we can handle the temptation that Satan pitches against us, I don't think we know enough to know how not good we are. Spiritually, I think most of us grade ourselves by the standard of neighborhood sandlot where we can always find a first grader to outperform. But friends, Satan is not playing sandlot ball. He's a professional when it comes to throwing temptations our way. And a large percentage of the time, we never see them coming. Not until it's too late. And that's the reason for these messages last week and this week. Because we need some spring training. And what better place to get it from the greatest trainer who ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ. Last week we began by looking at the way the tempter strategically and seductively approached Jesus and how Jesus easily handled every pitch that was thrown at him. But I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 4 again. And in verses 1 to 11, our text is where we were last week. We're going to finish it up today. And just as a refresher, last week we saw that Satan's timing in temptation is very selective. That's verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. His timing is selective. He attacked in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience. Jesus was just opening up his ministry publicly. He attacked in the midst of beginning a great personal endeavor. And he attacked in the midst of great physical and emotional depletion. Jesus was hungry. Then we saw, secondly, that Satan's tactics are systematic in verses 3 through 10. Then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan very systematically brought Jesus through a series of temptations, which we found that he uses with us. Number one, he tempts us to depart from the will of God. That's verses 3 and 4. He tempts us to doubt the word of God in verses 5 through 7. And then he attempts to divert our worship away from God, which is verses 8 through 10. And Jesus saw right through these cunning, seductive strategies of the enemy. He knew that Satan's price is always higher than he leads us to believe. He knew that his promises are always way more than he ever delivers to us. Satan was playing hardball and Jesus absolutely knew it. He was seeking to eat Jesus alive. Do you get that? And he does the same thing with us. Peter says, be careful, watch out for, for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for some victim to devour. So Satan's seductions are strategic, his timing is selective, his tactics are systematic. But before we move on, I think we need to go a little bit deeper and identify a couple more things. Thirdly, his temptations are specific. His temptations are very specific. Not only are his seductions strategically timed and systematically pitched, but they are specifically placed. Basically, there are three specific channels through which Satan predominantly attacks us in this world and through which he can get a foothold upon us. If we understand what they are, and remain alert to how susceptible we are to them, we can then know where to look and how to withstand him. Is that right? Following me? The first John chapter 2 and verse 16 ought to crystallize this for all of us. The words of this text 
seen through the lens of a few different versions that I'm going to read to you, give us the picture in high definition, okay? This is 4K scripture right here. 1 John 2, 14 through 16 out of the message. Your fellowship with God enables you to gain a victory over the evil one. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love, the, love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, and then also verse, chapter 5, verse 19, out of the New American Standard Bible, says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, 1 John 2, 16 in the New Century Version says, These are the ways of the world, wanting to please sinful selves, wanting the sinful things we see, and being too proud of what we have. None of these come from the Father, but all of them come from the world. And then one last one from the New Living Translation. Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love the world, you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father, but they're from this evil world. Did you get a picture of what those three things are now? First of all, he tempts us through the lust of our eyes, uh, lust of our flesh. You can see that in verses 2 to 4 here. Jesus was hungry. Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. Secondly, he tempts us through the lust of our eyes, verses 8 through 10 that I just read. Look at all these things, Jesus. Pinnacle of the temple, you can make a grand entrance to be the Messiah, everybody will know. All these kingdoms I'll give to you. You just bow down and worship me. That's the lust of the eyes. This response, says one author, may become so habitual that we don't even notice it. Satan tempting us through the lust of our eyes. I bet you don't even notice when Satan's tempting you with the lust of your eyes. He's so deceptive. Right about now, all of us want to know the same thing. What does the word lust really mean? It's actually the same word translated covet in other places in the Bible. The word simply means to earnestly desire. To earnestly desire. Is every desire that we have wrong? No. God created us with desires and passionate desires at that. The word for covet or lust literally means to be pleasant. It connotes delighting in something. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the words used for covet can actually describe an action towards something pleasantly desirable. The same word, however, depending upon the context in which it's used, can be used to describe an illicit, ungoverned, selfish desire, i.e., lust. And that's the connotation that most of us always think of, right? Uh, like, for example, when Jesus said that it is sin to look on a woman, to lust for her in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. And yet in Luke chapter 22, in verse 15, Jesus emphatically used the same exact Greek word two times to describe his own desire to eat the Passover with his disciples. Jesus says, I earnestly desire, I lust to eat the Passover with you. But lust in that context, that earnest desire in that context, wasn't negative, it was positive. Clearly, it is not desire in and of itself that is wrong, it's the way that we desire something that's wrong. Is that right? God created us with a desire to love, to excel, to succeed, 
to produce and accomplish things and to learn and discover things. He gave us certain physical and sexual and emotional and spiritual desires. But if those desires become off, if they become perverted or cross the lines and limitations that God has set of what is morally right and wrong, they become illicit and immoral desires. They become obsessive desires. They become lusts, which brings about sin. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 gives us the pattern. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now you can use anything you like. A beautiful woman. A good-looking man. A fast car a great-paying job, an enviable friendship. You fill in the blank. It works like this. You see something. You like it. You desire it. You begin to tell yourself, I have to have it. I can't live without it. And then you determine to get it at any cost. You covet. And the rest of the scenario is a runaway train, isn't it? It's exactly what Satan's doing to Jesus here. Tempting him in that way. And the first step in addressing the significance of Satan's attempt to utilize lust as an avenue of getting us to sin is to understand what it is. That's the first thing. The second thing, we need to know what lust does. What it does should come as no surprise then that the 10th commandment deals specifically with coveting. Same word for lust. Every breach of the first nine commandments is rooted in selfish desire or covetousness. Go through them. Go through them sometime and you test them all out. Idolatry, worshiping images, blaspheming the Lord's name, refusing to rest on and take Sabbath in obedience to God, disrespect for parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, every single one of those commandments has at its root the sin of covetousness. Stuart Briscoe brings this painfully home to us when he said that covetousness means worshiping desire, committing my life to fulfilling my wants. In that definition, we discover the real reason that Satan wanted to trip Jesus up because it breaks the two greatest commandments, doesn't it? By putting our desires first, we cannot love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. By committing our lives to the fulfillment of our desires and wants, we cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. Life becomes a whirlwind of greed which revolves completely around me, myself, and I. The unholy trinity, right? Covetousness, in the, apostles, in the Apostle Paul's words, ultimately amounts to idolatry. This is what Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, what? Idolatry. You think only Old Testament cults committed idolatry? No, we do it all the time. We just don't identify it as such. But this verse does. Tells us exactly what it is. And it harkens back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, this is not from the Father. This is from the world. So we must therefore stop forming our worldview from what we see and hear on our cell phones, tablets, computers, and televisions. Is that right? And yet what are we doing day by day? I'd like to see how many... I w no, I wouldn't even like to see. 
how many hours collectively all the people in this room right now have logged in on their tablets and phones and televisions this week. I think we would just be knocked over by that. And I'm just as guilty as the rest of you. But we need to stop taking our cues from the world, according to 1 John. Listen to this. I did a little research this week. According to one article I encountered, back in the 70s, the average person saw between 500 and 1,600 advertisements per day. A few decades later, in 2007, the market research firm Yankelevich estimated that, num that number to have been increased to 5,000 advertisements per day. Fast forward to 2020, and although there are no official figures as of yet, the average person is now estimated to encounter between six and 10,000 advertisements every single day. And if you don't believe me, listen to this one. Google has managed to grow its advertising revenue every year for the past 19 years to $134 billion in the year 2019. Just from advertising. The general message in this merchandising is this, that all of our problems and all of our unhappiness can be solved immediately by the consumption of the proper product. That's what they're telling you. Fact is, you know what? I found the real answer to my world of unhappiness in the wee hours of Friday morning, December 24th in 1982 in my in-law's living room in Massachusetts. That was the night I received Jesus Christ's offer of forgiveness, peace, and eternal life. That's the answer to your unhappiness. That's the answer to the world's problems. The Christian community needs to stop being squeezed into the world's mold and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12 says, so that we can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's what's really important. See, the scriptures encourage us to believe what God says we need and not be skewed by what Satan says we need. And the first thing you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the problem is not with your TV. It's not with the culture that you live in. It's not even with Satan, your enemy. Jesus identified what the problem was in Mark chapter 7 in verses 20 to 22 when he was saying to the disciples and to the people, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. There it is again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And you know where that comes from? It doesn't come from without, my friends. Jesus said, it comes from in here. It's out of the heart that those things proceed. And John identified it precisely Companies, you know what companies want to, they want to produce more, they want to sell more and make more because so they can tap into our tendency to want more so we'll buy more and we'll get more and we'll own more so we can think we are more. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. It's the sin of pride. And what was the sin that brought Satan down? Pride. Don't tell me that the secular marketing strategies aren't spiritual. They are. They take advantage of our spiritual emptiness, the depravity 
in the sinfulness in which we were born and our natural affinity for coveting things. We all covet. We're all guilty. The problem is inside of us. It's in our hearts. And Satan knows that and he uses it to his advantage. Here is the grand difference between the temptation of Christ in the desert and Satan's strategic seduction with us. Huge difference. Jesus was pure. He didn't have a sin nature. Satan tempts us through the same avenues that he used with Jesus, but also Satan is very keenly aware that because of our sin nature, we already have a disposition to those weaknesses. Marketing campaigns also understand that very same thing, and they capitalize on that principle. They appeal to our base nature, our insatiable craving for more. Let me quote what one pastor said. He said, God will never lead us to manage a desire in a sinful way. If I want to walk down the wrong road, this is what I have to do. I must begin by silencing God's divine voice within me. Did you ever notice that? You're walking with Christ, think you're doing pretty good, all of a sudden Satan tempts you with something, and it's really pulling you. Somewhere deep down in your heart, the Holy Spirit's voice is going, don't do that. Don't go there. And you know it. But you start making little course corrections, and so you kind of slide your way into it, right? What are we doing? We're silencing God's voice within us so that we can go the route we want to go. That's where it all starts. He says, I must be careful not to pray about this desire with a submitted spirit. And that's the first thing that leaves off is your prayer life, right? I must make sure I don't talk about this desire with wise friends who will hold me accountable. You start to isolate. You start to drift away from your friends. I must make sure I don't look carefully at passages of Scripture on the subject and reflect on them. Next thing you know, you're not reading your Bible anymore. I must do all these things without recognizing that I am doing them. That's the hideous part of it. And I must keep myself in a state of spiritual and mental vagueness where God is concerned. That's scary, isn't it? Temptation, one author wrote, promises that we can be free to gratify our appetites as much as we want. Temptation promises freedom, but it makes us a slave. There is always a hook. Real freedom is not the external freedom to gratify every appetite that we have. It is the internal freedom not to be enslaved by our appetites. To have a place to stand so that we are not mastered by those things. The devil tempts us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and he tempts us through the pride of life. Here is something that you and I know intuitively, yet we fail to realize practically. That's why the devil took Jesus on the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Guess what we understand intuitively? You and I are not tempted by that which repulses us, are we? Not for the most part. We're not tempted by things that repulse us. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Yet we continue to fall into the sin, the same areas every time and time again. We do not correct them. But here's the deal, and Satan banks on this deal. Like a fingerprint or a signature, you have a sin pattern. And I have a sin pattern. A susceptibility to temptation that is unique to you. While I'm talking about these general areas of temptation, you need to realize that you have a signature pattern of giving in to temptation that maybe I don't have. We're all unique in that way. Author Michael Mangis refers to them as signature sins. And I think it's important to briefly point out here, though I believe it deserves a much deeper treatment, that the power of Satan's temptations is directly related to the pattern of your signature sins and mine. 
Furthermore, the pattern of your sin is directly related to your spiritual gifts. Ooh. Our gifts and our passions, our talents, will also clue us in to the areas of greatest vulnerability that we have and make us more alert to where Satan may attack us. Using the baseball motif again, home run hitters whose gift is in their swing, guess what? They also tend to strike out more than other baseball players do. In other words, we can be our own worst problem. Because there is a relationship between the best version of you and me and the worst view version of you and me. And Satan capitalizes on that. As Adrian Monk of the famed TV series, Monk would say about his ability to notice details, it's a blessing and it's a curse. Commentator William Barclay warns that we must always remember that again and again we are tempted through our gifts. For example, he says this, the person who is gifted with charm will be tempted to use that charm to get away with anything. The person who is gifted with power of words will be tempted to use his command of words to produce glib excuses to justify his own conduct. The person with a vivid and sensitive imagination will undergo agonies of temptation that a more stolid person would never experience. The person with great gifts of mind will be tempted to use those gifts for himself and not for others to become the master and not the servant of men. It is the grim fact of temptation that it is just where we are strongest that we must be forever on the watch, unquote. Do you know that? Are you keenly aware of it on a day-to-day -day basis? Again, Michael Mangus identifies a handful of patterns that may help us. See if you can detect yourself in any of these examples. There are reformers. They have a deep love of perfection and a high standard of excellence. But they wrestle with perfectionism and self-righteousness and will be tempted to judge others whose standards are not so high as theirs. There are servers who love to be needed, great caregivers, and underneath their servanthood may lurk low self-esteem that demands to be fed but can never be filled up. The temptation there is that their giving can become a subtle form of taking. Then there are achievers, love to conquer challenges and perform before others. Their temptation is to live for their image and turn what looks like serving God into serving themselves. There are artists who love beauty and carry a strong desire to be unique, but in their need to stand out, they are tempted to look down on ordinary people. Thinkers crave knowledge and like to know everything. But the temptation sometimes is to like being right more than they love people that are around them. See, knowledge, the Bible says, puffs up. You know what? It's no fun to argue with a thinker unless you are one. Enthusiasts are wired to be the life of the party, but they are tempted to make life revolved around themselves and become miserable if they feel they're not getting enough attention. Commanders understand power and leadership, and they're drawn toward that. But the temptation is that power can become an end in itself, and a commander can get frustrated when he or she doesn't get their way. And then there are peacemakers, he says, which have a love for tranquility and serenity and relational harmony. They like it when life is comfortable and life is calm. In their redeemed state, they bring reconciliation to friendships and families and communities, which is central to God's character, amen? But peacemakers can be tempted to seek peace at any price and compromise the truth in doing so. You see, Satan knows exactly what buttons to push to turn our best selves into our worst nightmare. Be alert to his schemes. Figure out who you are. Figure out what your signature sins are. Figure out what your gifts are. 
Be aware of how Satan uses those things to tempt us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these examples of all these avenues of Satan's attacks emerge from the pages of Scripture. And we think, if we think that we are exceptions to the rule and that somehow we're going to get away with hiding our tendency in these areas, I think we need to look at the track record just a little bit closer. For instance, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, because they desired to eat of the fruit of the tree from which God forbade them to eat, they acted on it. Spiritual and physical death came as a result of that action, didn't it? Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, his covetousness resulted not only in his death, but the death of his family and many of his countrymen. He saw, he coveted, he took, he tried to cover it up, and he was found out. Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21 2,800 years ago, he desired Naboth's vineyard to the point where he couldn't even eat anymore. His wife Jezebel added to the sin by killing Naboth. The result? Ahab was judged and destroyed by the Lord. And then, of course, there's David and Bathsheba. He coveted. He sinned. He tried to camouflage it. He murdered he married and he paid for the rest of his life. Although he was forgiven, the consequences never left him. And Israel desired the fleeting pleasures of Egypt over the gracious providence of God. Remember, they whined and moaned and wah, wah, wah about the manna and then they didn't have any quail and then they had too much quail, so much so that it made them sick to their stomach. You know, in Numbers chapter 11, it calls those graves of craving is the word that's used about many of them falling in the wilderness. The, the examples are too many to ignore in the Bible. The New Testament has its own list as well. Judas Iscariot, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8, the false teachers of the first century who were greedy for power and prestige and popularity right on up to the 21st century in 2020 today. All of them, all of us think that they could beat the system. None of them beat the system. No one ever gets away with sin. It was St. Augustine, I believe, who made the enigmatic observation, sin is the punishment of sin. Dwell on that one for a while. But remember this, temptation is not sin. Sin is the result of the wrong response to temptation, right? Sin is the punishment of sin. James chapter 1, we just saw that a little while ago, that whole process in verses 14 and 15 that we're drawn away by our desires. And then we give in to it. And then we sin. And then sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Nobody wants that. You know what the solution is? Christ. The solution is Christ. It's life in Christ. The cure is allowing his Holy Spirit to guide us and our desires. The answer is to follow the Spirit's lead. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, which we refer to all the time. I referred to it last week, but I never quoted it. But it says that God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure the temptation. And that's the thing we always forget, right? We've got a bunch of Christians running around saying mantras like, God will never give me too much to bear. Well, they forget the second half of it. God will not give you too much to bear where, where, wherein he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. But if you forget about that stuff, you're in false doctrine. Sorry. God will give you all kinds of things you can't bear because he wants you to rely on Christ to bear them. Galatians 5.16, this is the way of escape. So if you want to know what that way of escape is, here it is. Galatians 5.16, what I say is this, let the Spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. 
It is only through a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and a willingness to follow the Spirit that we can escape the snare of the devil and the grip of the devil. Satan's seductions are strategic, but they can be surmounted. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus shows us exactly how, exactly how. The most promising thing that we need to see in this passage is that Satan's threats can be silenced. They can be. You read passages like this passage in Matthew 4 or Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 and then 13 through 17 about the armor of God. James chapter 4, verses 7, uh, verse 7. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. I'm not going to go into the, all of those. I will refer to some of them. But how do we deal with Satan when he does attack? Well, I'm going to give you a few ways in which he can be silenced really quickly. And first, we need to understand that they're not silenced. We are not able to silence Satan's temptations by running away from Satan. Get that out of your mind right away. The Bible does not tell us to flee from Satan. The Bible tells us to flee from idolatry. The Bible tells us to flee from immorality. The Bible tells us to flee from youthful lusts. The Bible tells us to flee from the love of money, which is the root of all evil. Those are distinctly specific things that the Bible tells us to flee from, but it never tells us to flee from the devil. The way to silence his threats is to stand firm in our faith Clothed with his armor, we must resist him. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Amen? Firm in your faith. You just can't stand up and say, be gone, Satan, if you've got no faith. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the victory of the day. Not that we flee from Satan, but he runs away from us. Notice the key here, submission to God. If you do not and I do not submit ourselves, therefore, to God, we have no power to resist the devil. None. That's a prerequisite. There are three things that will silence the threats of the devil, the scriptures, the spirit, and the son, Jesus Christ. He cannot stand against those three things. Therefore, we must know them well and we must submit to God through those three avenues. His threats, number one, are silenced by the word of the scriptures. Every time Jesus was tempted in this text, he responds with, it is written, it is written, it is written. It would be the equivalent of Billy Graham in all of his messages say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Look what happened in verse 11. What's it say? Then the devil, what? Everybody say it left him, fleed from him. The devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The devil left, the angels came. There is strengthening following the resisting of the enemy when you do it as you submit yourself to God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 encourages us to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, amen? Number two, his threats are silenced by the power of the Spirit. We can't fight the battle apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit, the second person in the Trinity. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. We must submit to the control of the Spirit and prayer becomes key here. The culmination of all of our protection against the devil ends with the power of prayer in the Spirit. It says, with, with, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That's Ephesians 6.18. You know what? Satan hates it when we pray. He hates it. Because it harnesses all the hosts of heaven. The most important thing to remember when standing firm against the devil, though, is that his threats are silenced by the prayers of the Son. Prayers of the Son. You hear what I'm telling you? I'm not telling you, the Bible's telling you. Satan's deceptive, he's determined, but he's also defeated. Christ triumphed over him on the cross. And not only that, but he's always with us and he will never forsake us, he said. We need to be confident of that as we stand firm. Remember the verse that we began with last time? 
Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What did Jesus say after that? Look again. Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 31. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Underline that. Underline that, verse 32, because that's the foundation of our victory. This verse shows that both Satan's desire and his design are rendered powerless by his defeat. Christ prays for us. Now, you might look at that text and you might say, oh, he was talking to Peter and his disciples. Well, I think you need to read Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is able once and forever to save everyone who comes to God through him because he lives forever to plead with God on their behalf. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He lives for that. And also Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says the same exact thing. And not only about the, the Son praying for us. Look at what it says there. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. But if you back up a little ways to verse 26, we find out that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us as well. And he intercedes for us according to the will of God. So we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that is on our side. That's why James says, when you submit yourself, therefore, to God and resist the devil, he's going to flee from you because you've got the power of the triune God behind you. You see? Luke chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 which is a parallel passage to Matthew 4, and we'll wrap it up with this. It says, And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him. But Luke adds a little detail here that Matthew didn't add. He left him until an opportune time. See, Satan wasn't done. And he waited patiently for another opportune time to act. And I believe that that time was in Mark chapter 14 and verse 11 when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. And at the opportune time when Jesus again was most weakest... It began at the beginning of his public ministry and again at the end in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing the cross. He was weak emotionally, physically. He knew what was going to happen. And the devil tempted him to bypass the cross. And if you've never seen The Passion of the Christ, there is an amazing scene at the very beginning of that movie where Satan and Jesus have this dialogue. So I want, you to, I want to leave you with a couple of practical suggestions here. Number one, don't be naive. Expect temptation. No one's immune, not even Jesus, especially not you and me. Number two, don't be blind. Learn to detect temptation a mile off. Adopt a watchful attitude. Number three, do not fear. Stand firm against the temptation after you submitted yourself to God, which you should be doing all the time and I should be doing all the time. And number four, don't be foolish. Don't flirt with temptation. You can never take the killer instinct out of it and make it tame. So protect yourself. Well, enough on the temptations. Let me wrap it up with a little story. In West with the Night, an extraordinary autobiography about growing up in Africa, 
Beryl Markham tells a story of Patty, a wild, solitary lion that adopted a, neighborhood's, a neighbor's farm as his home. And for, 12, for a 12-mile radius, the solitary lion that adopted this farm as his home would wander through Elkington's field and pastures. His seeming friendliness, however, proved to be deceptive one day, as young Beryl found out. Beryl writes, quote, I was within 20 yards of the Elkington lion before I saw him, and he lay sprawled in the morning sun, huge, black-maned, and gleaming with life. His tail moved slowly, stroking the rough grass like a knotted rope, and his body was sleek and easy, making a mold where he lay, a cool mold that would be there when he had gone. He was not asleep. He was just idle. He was rusty red and soft like a strokeable cat. I stopped and he lifted his head with magnificent ease and stared at me out of yellow eyes and I remembered the rules that one remembers. I did not run. I walked very slowly and began to sing. I went in a straight line past Patty when I sang it, seeing his eyes shine in the thick grass, watching his tail beat time to the meter of my ditty. Singing it still, I took up my trot toward the rim of the low hill, which might, if I were lucky, have Cape gooseberry bushes on its slopes. The country was gray-green and dry, and the sun lay on, on it closely, making the ground hot under my bare feet. There was no sound, there was no wind. Even Patty made no sound, coming swiftly behind me. And what I remember most clearly of the moment that followed are three things. A scream that was barely a whisper, a blow that struck me to the ground, and Patty's teeth close on the flesh of my leg. What happened to Beryl can happen to us, every single one of us at the crossroads of temptation. The lion that we face right there is also silent and he's also swift and its attacks can be just as deadly as Patty's. But unlike the lion that left its scars on Beryl, our adversary is invisible and he's insidiously patient. Satan doesn't try to bring our whole life down in one charge. Rather, he prefers to fall upon his prey in little subtle ways, constantly weakening and wearing us down, blow by blow, little bite by little bite. And then, finally, he comes in for the easy kill. Are there any little temptations that are trying to nibble away at you today? Nibble away your honesty, your purity, or maybe some other area? Because there, right there, is your crossroads of temptation. Our fall isn't usually when we commit some sin that all the world sees. Long before then, the hidden places of our hearts are where the crossroad decisions are made that ultimately shape our lives. And so, I leave you with what Peter says, who is very well versed in his, in his challenges and facing off with Satan. Be on the alert for your enemy. He prowls around looking for someone to devour. And then James, Jesus' brother, said, Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you.